Toby Haydock has chicken pox, so for one episode only, he's being played by someone else. Uh, well, it's another one of those Skype calls, and this time I'm talking uh, all the way to Scotland to, I think, for the first time in this series of podcasts, a companion of Doctor Who. So I'm going to ask uh, the gentleman in question to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Uh, my name's Hamish Wilson, and uh, with poor old Fraser Hines got uh, chicken box. I took over at very short notice from Fraser and was the Doctor's assistant for two episodes, in effect. Uh, Fraser came back for the second episode, um, and we worked the swap back uh, at that point. Well, talk about being thrown in at the deep end, because I guess you must have... Did you? I mean, was the time to audition? No, I was told... I, I was actually working in an office in central London, and I got this phone call from my agent saying, can you please get down to, to be quite honest, I can't remember where they were rehearsing, but um, they, they, they've got something for you in Doctor Who. And at the height of my optimism, I thought I might get to drive a Dalek. But um, <laughs> I got down there and Patrick Troughton and the lovely Wendy Padbury and, uh, were, were waiting as... Uh, was a director and a fairly anxious-looking production crew. And uh, I was handed the script, and it was explained to me what had happened to Fraser. And um, we were recording, I think it was the following day. So I spent that day working with uh, Patrick, who was marvellous, and Wendy, who was also marvellous. And um, we did the blocking, the, the moves. And we ran the scenes uh, kind of two or three times to try and nail them. And then I went home and uh, I sat down and got the lines into my head and uh, turned up at the studio the next day. And then, I mean, I was thrilled out my socks because uh, uh, I'd watched the early episodes of Doctor Who with uh, William Hartnell uh, playing the Doctor. And uh, and I remember Patrick appearing, I suppose he was kind of like a, a beatnik Doctor Who, he was playing a, a recorder and uh, sitting cross-legged, I think. So he may very well have been a Buddhist Doctor <laughs> Who as well. <laughs> a beatnik Buddhist, that's a very nice description. <laughs> And was he anything like his doc? Because he's quite an enigmatic figure, Patrick Troughton. Was he anything like the doctor that he played? Uh, no, actually, he wasn't. Um, he, he was great fun um, and a very funny man and uh, a wicked sense of humour. Uh, and he and Wendy uh, clearly got on well because, as I say, they were able between them to, to, to help guide my my footsteps, as it were. Um, 
different roles on television uh, down the years. So I was also a bit thrilled to work with Patrick Troughton because I always thought he was a good actor. Um, I've always excused him on those grounds, the Scottish accent he had when he played Alan Breck when they did uh, Kidnapped. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, I mean, while the accent may not have been absolutely kosher, the, the performance was, I think, very right for the character. As a young Scottish actor, do you occasionally resent watching um, British, uh, English actors, sorry, um, um, mauling uh, your natural tongue? Although interestingly, as you're brought in to replace um, Fraser uh, because yep. um, you needed a, the, the, another Scottish actor was needed, but you and he are not from the same part of Scotland. He could re- really be claimed to be from that famous part of Scotland called Yorkshire. But um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know Geoffrey Smith, the great Yorkshire gardener. Yeah. Who died? I think it was last year. That's right. Yeah. From. Uh, and uh, he used to say that Yorkshiremen were like. Scots with a generosity beaten out of them. <laughs> <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> so, so, uh, so it is with Fraser. Uh, no, not really. Um, but Fraser is, uh, uh, I mean, his Scots, I thought, was actually very good. There were moments when I thought, mm, not quite, but, you know, by and large, I thought it was really good. And um, do you remember the, the, the director, David Maloney? Bernard Horsfall has just died as well, sadly, who was also in it. Yeah, I was so sorry to hear that. Uh, he was lovely. He was a big, huge, big, tall man, but very, very quiet. And, uh, 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 I think you would call him in the 
original sense of the term, a gentleman, you know. Um, but I, yeah, I was very sorry to hear that. And of course, Nicholas Courtney died last year, which was such a shame, because Nick and I were world jousting opponents uh, with inequity. Um, when I was working as a professional actor, uh, I was a member of equity, and Nick and I were, as it were, at opposing ends of the debate that constantly went on within the union. And we got on like a house and fire. You know, he and I were, were, were good mates, but um, I saw him at a convention in London about 18 months ago, and he was looking far from well then. And I was awful sorry to hear he died. Uh, he was a nice man. He was. He was a lovely man. But this, this, this is very interesting. The, the. Um, so, what, uh, what ends of the spectrum were you at with equity, and what, what, what were the, uh, what were the subjects of the day, as it were? Well, it varied. Uh, Toby, sometimes it would be about uh, uh, entrance. Uh, sometimes it would be about. Uh, we had this odd thing that the. West End theatre managers had asked Equity to ensure that the people who were coming to audition for shows in the West End had actually done quite a bit of work. They weren't fresh out of drama school. Uh, and this was not something that Equity had asked for. This was something that the West End theatre managers had asked for. And people were asked to go down and do a card check. And you had you went back and you reported back what had happened and so on and so on. I mean, it was... It, this, makes it sound a bit kind of KGB-ish. It wasn't anything like that, but it was something that the union had agreed to do, and so uh, people went and did it. Um, the debates in... Uh, and that would be to do with, for instance, control of entry. Uh, and then, of course, all that vanished when um, the legislation regarding trade unions were... were was altered and uh, you weren't allowed to have control of entry. So now everybody who goes to a drama school and graduates uh, automatically gets an equity card. But they still have to do 40 weeks work before they can work in the West End. And that again is not like to do with equity, it's to do with, um, it's to do with the uh, West End Theatre Managers because they want, uh, they want people to be experienced before the audition. You, you started studying drama quite young, didn't you? Yes. I, um, I did that stupidly romantic thing of running away from school to go up on the stage. And, um, and the school caught up with me, and um, I, got, I got all kinds of rows, not just from schoolmasters and head teachers, uh, but needless to say from the family. Um, but uh, I actually started working uh, professionally at the Citizens Theatre in a production of the Arthur Miller adaptation of Henrik Ibsen's An Enemy of the People. Mm. And it was directed by Peter, Peter Dugit. And of course, it's very funny because uh, Hugh Ross uh, was also in that production. We were both at the same school. And Hugh uh, and I were put in a separate dressing room. And I asked why that 
he was explained to me it was so that Hugh and I wouldn't hear the actors swearing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you mean we're not supposed to know these words? <laughs> yes, I don't know. I, Hugh, I, I think Hugh and I were approximately of an age. So I would be, I guess, 14, 15. I can't remember exactly. But uh, after that, I, uh, I was cast by Peter Graham Scott in the title role of a television play which he was directing for Associated Rediffusion. And uh, it was called The Boy from the Gorbals. It was adapted from a Robin Jenkins novel called The Changing. The Changeling, I beg your pardon. And uh, oh, there were all sorts of folk in that. Molly Arquette, Robert James, uh, Jimmy Copeland, and... Um, and again, wonderful learning experience because um, I'd never done that level of television, in fact, at all. And so that was quite exciting. And of course, the daftness of television in those days was that uh, it was live. There was no video recording. You went on and you did it as you did it. And if it all went pear-shaped, um, somebody had to... It didn't go pear-shaped, thank God. But uh, I do remember there was a lovely man called Peter Yolland who was the floor manager, which is a different kind of floor manager from the way the BBC floor manager works. But Peter was, uh, was our floor manager, and he was there throughout the rehearsals and everything. And uh, he stuck his head round the door we were out at Wembley Studios, stuck his head round the door. He said, good luck, Hamish. There'll be 20 million people watching this. And I sa said, thanks, Yolly. He, he, he was called Yolly. Um, I said, thanks, Yolly. And I sat down and I said, 20 million. And it just, I, I, fortunately, whatever part of me passes for um, a thought, I said, don't be silly, that can't be right. <laughs> Uh, because if I'd actually started to think about 20 million people, I think I'd still be sitting in Wembley Studios chewing my fingernails as a 12, small trembling heap in a corner of the room. <laughs> you know? But uh, it went well, and um, uh, that, was, that was a very exciting period. I went to drama school after that, uh, the Glasgow Drama School, and I was there graduated from there in 1963, but I did quite a bit of work. Well, during summer holidays, we weren't allowed to work during term time, but I did a bit of work during summer holidays. I, I was in the first episode, first episode, the first making of Greyfriars Bobby. I met Walt Disney on the set too, that was odd and nice. Um, I was sitting trying to chat up a pretty blonde girl who was an Oxbridge undergrad who was doing ex extra work. I have to tell you, with absolutely no success whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, and, and this gentleman in uh, well, blonde hair, little moustache, dark suit and tie, and a light shorty raincoat thrown over his shoulders. And he came over and started chatting to me, and I stood up, and we, he had an American accent, and we nattered away, and that was fine. I think he spent about five minutes talking to me, and then he wandered away. And 
I sat down and the girl was suddenly looking terribly impressed. And I spoiled it awfully because I didn't recognize him. I'd seen Walt Disney on television, but of course on television in those days he was black and white, or shades of grey. I simply didn't recognize him. I said, who was that? At which point she stopped being impressed and said, that was Walt Disney. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those strange things. Uh, we, were sh- we were shooting at Shepparton, and I, as far as I was concerned, my, my problem was to stop my jaw dropping onto the table every time some huge name walked by, you know. Uh, so if somebody spoke to you, you just spoke to them and kind of treated it as normally as you possibly could. Maybe that's why I didn't recognize Walt Disney. I'm too terrified of the thought of it. But, uh, but that, that is actually what happened. Uh, I worked, I did some television work at BBC. I, I managed to keep myself turning over a wee bit. Um, I think possibly because I looked very young, uh, but I was old enough to be employed without needing a chaperone, so I was a cheap, uh, young-looking person. A cheap juvenile. When I was growing up as a Doctor Who fan, and I used to scour the Radio Times so that I would watch programmes that had Doctor Who people in, I kept noticing uh, Hamish Wilson was a radio producer, and I often thought, oh, is that is that the same one? And it turns out yes. it, it was. So how would you jump from acting to becoming a very prolific, it has to be said, producer of um, fine Radio 4 drama and things? Uh, a beautiful girl smiled at me, and uh, <laughs> I decided... I really, if we were going to get married and have a family, I ought to find a slightly more regular form of making a living than working as a jobbing actor. And I started out by getting a job as a television announcer for Scottish television. And then uh, Radio Forth, which was the second commercial radio station to set up in Scotland. Radio Forth was starting in Edinburgh and they were looking for an arts and drama producer. And I applied for the job and I got it. And I, uh, between myself and uh, a sound engineer called Sandy Wilkie, we kind of reinvented the wheel by doing radio drama. We actually went on air with a serial uh, drama and uh, late night horror stories being read. Uh, and that's how I started. And I moved from fourth after about four or five years to Clyde in Glasgow. And then I moved from Radio Clyde to work at BBC. But you didn't turn your back on acting entirely, did you? No, 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 no. I, 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 uh, uh, when I left the Beeb, I went back to the old trade and I was given a variety of jobs uh, doing voiceover work. Well, I don't think you can call yourself a Scottish actor if you haven't been in Taggart, is that fair to say? <laughs> Nigel Stock and I actually formed a, a very exclusive club um, because neither of us had done a Finlay. So Nigel, being the senior of the two, was the president and I was the, the Hon Sec. <laughs> and they, uh, three weeks after I'd met uh, 
Nigel when he was up doing uh, uh, This Man Craig. Uh, he had to resign because he got a Finlay. He got a Finlay, oh. <laughs> we were going to recruit members um, of that club for, from Scottish actors who had never done a Finlay. Uh, but we only got as far as two, and as he'd resigned, we didn't have any other members. Um, I kind of so you were an island of one. Um, but as well as uh, the producing and the acting, you've also, you know, you've also helped bring in the next generation because you've taught. Yeah. Um, and I, am I right in thinking you taught at the same um, uh, drama school that David, you taught voice even at the same drama school that David Tennant studied in, but he was in the other class, is that right? That's right, yes. I, 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 not so much voice. I teach them, I used to teach them radio drama because... I worked at the BBC, and I uh, I said to the BBC when they offered me the job, I said, "Look, I've got this commitment to do work at um, our Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, as it was in those days. Uh, will I have to stop that?" And they said, "No, no, press on." Uh, they regarded it as being part of the public service uh, ethic of the BBC that uh, radio drama producers should do that. You're you're preparing youngsters for a very different landscape to the one that you um, earned your stripes. Oh, that's a terrible mixed metaphor, but um, the the, the, the acting world is very different. It's very different, firstly, because the repertory system has gone. Uh, when When I graduated from the school in Glasgow in 1963, I got a copy of Contacts from Spotlight and I wrote in excess, I can't honestly tell you how many, in excess of a hundred letters I wrote to theatres all up and down the UK Uh, and I got very few replies I have to say, but um, those were all theatres that were running and were that part of the process of training for young actors where they went and worked with older, more experienced actors and learned how to use the tools that they got um, when they were drama school. Uh, and that's all gone. Uh, the other thing that has changed mightily is that uh, the figures from the National Council for Drama Training indicate that first jobs for most graduates from schools of drama, again up and down the land um, are in the order of 75% first jobs are before a camera and or a microphone rather than working in theatre. And uh, I mean, that's that awful story. The lovely Richard Griffiths um, said that it, this is a man who'd worked for huge amounts of time in the Royal Shakespeare Company. And he was delighted when he got television and a bit of movie because he didn't know how he was going to be able to pay the bills for running the house. I mean, it's a great thing that we forget that actors subsidise theatre because they love doing it. Mm. Um, So, yes, things have changed mightily for for young people who are coming out of uh, schools of drama. Uh, And... Each one of those things, they will know their market, and I'm sure they will respond.
respond to the conditions as as they need. But it's not a position uh, that I envy in any way. I think it must be very difficult. But of course, they might land a job on Doctor Who, and then forty odd years later, some weirdo might um, phone them up. So, I mean, for for a job that had probably took up less than two weeks of your life, but but that still gets attention. I mean, a lot of people might resent that. Um, how 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 does how does Doctor Who figure in your life? Uh, from time to time, I am asked to go to conventions, and I sit and I sign photographs for people come up. I, quite honestly, Toby, when I'm asked, I'm always pleased to be asked. But when I'm there, I tend to feel a little fraudulent because I can be sitting beside people who did many episodes. And I only did two. I mean, I'd love to do a lot more. Uh, but um, uh, I, I've only done the two episodes. And one of those was really the, the second one was almost half an episode because the phaser came back and we had to do the, the, the proper changeover. Um, but it's great. I, uh, I like the people that I've met at these conventions. Um, they are, in a most amiable sense and manner, uh, quite daft. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, they know more. That, that one of our daughters... Um, was at university in Dundee and she told me that there was this guy in one of the, the, the groups, one of the tutorial groups of which she was a part, who knew an enormous amount about Doctor Who and I, uh, Diane, my, my wife and I went up to uh, take her out for a, a busty lunch and peradventure this bloke was walking down the other side of the road as we were walking her back to her flat and she said oh that's the Doctor Who guy and she shouted him across the road and he came up and he talked to me for 40 minutes <laughs> about Doctor Who and Patrick and Wendy and Fraser and about the, uh, the, the, the story I had been in and he was telling me stuff I just didn't know <laughs> yeah. that is fascinating uh, and, it, it, you know, it's a passion, and I love to hear people sharing their passion. Uh, everybody from Whovians, as I call them, uh, to Andrew Graham Dixon when he's talking about art history on BBC4. Uh, I, I, I'm very happy to, to sit or stand and listen. The only problem was that we were standing on the Perth Road in Dundee, which is a very busy main street, and the traffic, the traffic tearing up and down the street, and I'm standing trying to hear everything this enthusiast uh, was, was telling me about about Doctor Who. So it's lovely, it's lovely. It's about people sharing their passion, and uh, it's great. It's fun. Well, thank you for sharing um, your memories. I've just got a couple of... Uh, uh, oh, and by the way, you mustn't feel fraudulent. You were in Doctor Who. Also, unlike a lot of people, you also, even though temporarily, you played one of the Doctor's companions. These things are yes. not to be sniffed at. Yes, I know. I think it... I mean, I, I wear that badge with, um, with great pride. <laughs>
So the two questions that I leave till the end are first, um, because you've kindly given your time very generously and I appreciate it, um, is and because the listeners have not paid for this and none of us get paid, uh, I ask you to nominate a charity, Hamish, that hopefully they will uh, put their hands in their pockets for. I think perhaps the RNLI. Um, they once pulled my stepfather and my sister out of the Firth of Clyde uh, and brought not only the two of them in the rib, um, but towed the boat in as well. So um, uh, I think the least I can do is, is uh, nominate them. And the last question is um, the reason that our jump-off point to talk was to talk about Doc 2, but uh, thank you for talking about various fascinating areas outside. But Doc 2 is 50 this year. On the 23rd of November, 1963, it started. Um, so do you have a message to the listening Doctor Who fans who will be hopefully devouring this podcast? I would say bake a cake, stick one candle in, because... If you stick 50 candles in, you'll fetch up with a firestorm. Um, and sing happy birthday to Doctor Who. And then they could think about this. So there's a limited number of regenerations. So is it going to be a man when that runs out? Or is it going to be uh, a Doctor Who who is female? Ah. <laughs> the, the internet will be a very interesting place to live when that happens. Oh, yes. <laughs> Oh, uh, well, look. Thank you for your time. No, uh, thank you for yours. I'm very grateful. And uh, good luck with the rest of the project. Yeah, well, bless you. Thank you for your time, Hamish, and I really appreciate it. And I'll let you know when it's, uh, when it's out. And have a lovely evening. Okay, thanks very much. Great, thanks very much indeed. Cheers. Hamish, a delightful man. His charity is the RNLI, who are at, uh, somewhat unsurprisingly, www.rnli.org. Next up, we have part two of my lengthy chat with Sue Upton, the PA who worked on 30-odd episodes and who's never spoken about her time on the show uh, before. This is Toby Haddock's Who's Round. If you don't like it, just keep saying it doesn't exist over and over again until it turns to cardboard. Works for me. Amy, something terrible is happening in this hospital. Well, let me guess. A series of unexplained deaths. Bodies coming in clawed, skinned, punctured, burned. Delete as applicable. No, that's just it. It's quite the opposite. There's been a series of unexplained livings. Dark Shadows, the happier dead. Staking vampires? Sending demons back to hell? It could be our thing. Our thing? Every couple has a thing. Yeah, like bowling or roller discos. Well, I'm not doing those things. There's someone I want you to meet. (laughs) And who wants to meet you? Amy, this is Edwin Beadle. Hi. Edwin and I got to talking. I mentioned you. Wouldn't stop. What you did... And as it turns out, he's a friend of the professor. Dr. Balthazar, D- Dr. Balthazar, it's happening again. Pauline, what's going on? Oh my, the truck ran him off the road. 
there were steel pipes in the... It's not possible, Amy, it's just not. His whole chest cavity. Time of death! I'm sorry? This man's got no heart, half a lung, and nobody's called it. Did you even finish medical school? Dr. Balthazar... Ms. Jennings, I suggest you get back to bed before I have you escorted there by security. But this man is alive! Amy, how do we stop a zombie? One? Amy? Two? Amy! What? I can't... What? Hear him! Ah! 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 